There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hi, I'm Stephen On this week's New Statesman podcast, we discuss a new political compass quiz and whether or not we would sleep with an attractive alien. Plus, you ask us what's going on with power sharing and the novel coronavirus. So because I like nothing better than charts and categorising people, <laughs> there is a new version of the political compass quiz with different more UK-centric questions that I put in my free morning email. And uh, we have now, we've literally all just done. And I thought it would be a kind of fun talking point to discuss. I realise this means I basically ask us all to do homework for this week's <laughs> episode. So other than the not particularly surprising result, then I am significantly further to the right economically than either of you. And then Alva is, is basically like, is creeping up into that blue labour zone. <laughs> so this, for people who haven't done the quiz it splits the political spectrum into kind of a left-right axis and a liberal authoritarian or liberal communitarian or whatever language you want axis i don't think it's going to shock any of our listeners that we are all in the uh lib left square but you know i am i'm, I'm only just in the lib left square the lib right square is, is dangerously close <laughs> whereas yeah whereas alva over here is one or two questions changing away from left off. Really? Am I not? I'm being deeply unfair. I'm because I'm, <laughs> I'm squarely in the in the left woke thing, but I'm I'm surprised I'm so far to the left, and kind of surprised I'm not further along the woke thing. I mean, like I'm quite squarely woke, but I thought it, I thought it would it would come out differently, and I think that that's a real symptom of how many things I answered don't know to more than anything else. Yeah, because can you truly be be woke as this quiz defines it if there's a lot that you you're not 100% sure of your opinion on? Probably not. Well, it, it's interesting because to me at least the essence of liberalism is broadly don't care. Mm. Now, mm. it's not sufficient to not care because a lot of the time you have to actively tear down barriers erected by other people caring, right? Someone's going to get all Chesterton's fence on me and be like, you shouldn't tear that barrier down until you know what it's for. But um, <laughs> but broadly, like, a lot of those are issues on which I'm just like, you know, you do you. Other than, of course, the question, which I actually think is the essence of the liberal, co well, I'm not like liberal communitarian, but I think the, the essence of liberalism and conservatism, actually, I think can be distilled down into one question. Which is, I would have sex with an attractive alien. 
<laughs> that, pause, that pause was worth it. That was like a clicking drum roll. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there, 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 yeah, I mean, there are a lot of questions in this quiz, actually. Like, that is question 33 of, of 46. Yeah, see, I have issues with this question. I think more of it hinges on the word attractive than the word alien. Because what is that word doing in there? Like, attractive... <laughs> attractive to whom you know like you know if the question was like would you have sex with an attractive person you would see how absurd that question is because do they mean like conventionally attractive by western society's standards do they mean because if they mean like subjectively attractive you find this alien attractive then of course you would have sex with them I just thought so I felt like the way that question was set up I had no choice but to answer yes but I didn't feel like it it got to the to the nub of the the politics the way it should have done so it should have said with an alien that you find attractive yeah or, or it should have set it up differently to be I don't know you find someone in a bar attractive and then discover they're an alien, would you have sex with them? And like maybe maybe that captures it's like that it's like your attitude towards the other, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's, because it's yeah, God, this is also this is why why I say it's the essence of, of, of yeah, the question this is the essence of everything because that dynamic of, you know, who is it attractive to? It's like, well, my standards, obviously, mm. because I'm inherently self-centered. But then if you're reading it as a question about your particular circumstances, then you would trip up on it like I did, where I thought, well, I'm in a relationship. So no matter how lustful I felt towards <laughs> no aliens this for you in extraordinary being. <laughs> Although I did, I did in the end click that I would. So sorry, Matt. <laughs> <laughs> I fancied the monster from The Shape of Water, so I feel like that's, you know, I would be comfortable with sleeping with an alien. I mean, also, I just, one, I think Albert's exactly right. Like, ultimately, the word attractive is the key, right? Mm. If you are attracted to an alien, why wouldn't you sleep with them? Yeah, you know, imagine for a moment you're footloose and fancy free, right? Yeah, yeah. The only non-suspect reason to not sleep with an attractive alien is if the attractive alien doesn't want to sleep with you. <laughs> or if you are attached to someone. But that's true of an alien, of a man, a woman, of Tottenham Hotspur supporter, of, you know, like, you know, any any number of... I mean, I wouldn't call a Tottenham Hotspur supporter back. <laughs> but, yeah, ultimately, it's the, it's the essence of liberalism. I kind of think you could probably strip away all of the liberalism questions, and this would alone yeah. allow positions. So we all said yeah. yes. Yeah very revealing i think i think i think this is the moment where we realize that the new statesman isn't representative of the opinions of the country at large <laughs> yeah i just I, I i really assume that it would not be be that one i think one of the things i do really like about this quiz is the don't know don't care thing of it of which like say i think it was like the one about the monarchy where it's just oh like abolish the monarchy well like i mean like, obviously i think my, my technical position is like obviously i think we should be able to elect the head of state but I'm deeply suspicious of people who care. Oh, I was, I was a strong agree. That's why you're more high up in the, um, in the left. Yeah, no, I thought that was interesting. And also, some the don't know, don't care is quite useful. So for something like the monarchy, I don't care whether or not it's abolished. Well, that's my strongest feeling about it. But for some of the po more policy-based questions, I had to put don't know because it was a policy that I do care about, but I actually don't know what's the best way of approaching it. But I assume that in the 
little algorithm that works out what that means about you. If you don't know, it still means that you do care about the topic. And it's probably very telling if you if you don't care about certain policy areas in the questions. Yeah, I think that that was maybe why my result came out the way it did, because I think that social issues are like much more accessible and like much more instinctive if you just sort of live in the world and and read things you kind of know your instinctive positions on those but I certainly feel like economically on particular areas of policy especially if you're a journalist you do kind of need to be open to the research and the arguments so even on like nationalizing rail or whatever even though I feel like I would know a fair bit about that I don't think I have arrived at a fixed position and would want to read more on it and would probably have that position on on lots and lots of economic issues for for my entire life. So for loads of it, I was just don't know, Mm. even though I was really leaning one one way or the other, because I think that what the compass doesn't doesn't quite capture is is that as a sort of approach to politics, like a, a kind of consistent openness to the arguments and because I suppose some people will have fixed positions on certain issues for their entire lives and other people will will move more as the specific policy arguments change or the research changes. And so, yeah, I think I was I was don't know for a lot of it kind of on principle, but but that didn't help the compass very much. <laughs> I think I put don't know on um, nationalising utilities, mm. which actually isn't very consistent with with some of my other answers. Because on certain cer- certain questions, I answer with my gut, like agree that immigration is important for the social fabric of my country. But that's a gut response, even though, you know, all of the work that I've done on that suggests that, that it's a net good. Whereas for nationalising utilities, I feel like I don't know enough about the policy and obviously don't feel passionate enough about it to have to have researched it beforehand. And so I have to put don't know. Yeah, I think for me, like probably the most like internally inconsistent answer I did between one another was being comfortable with high levels of of redistribution, but basically being like, but I don't actually care about specific rates of tax on. Yeah, you know, I, I get why some people get very excited about like, oh, you know, we should tax capital, not income. Oh, we should tax land. Oh, we should tax this, and it's just like broadly, I just want to redistribute and not to have concentrations of wealth and power. And I, frankly, it's, it, it, you know, there are some things where you're just like, I'm just really happy to outsource my thinking on some issues. And I'm just really happy to basically be like, I would like this objective. And I am really happy to trust whatever, like, the latest policy thinking on that objective is. And I frankly do not care if the late, you know, care between any of those ones but I I think that's definitely like the one which was like where I most felt I got value out of the don't care button yeah it's like I don't care how you do it but I support this principle did you put that billionaires are a policy failure oh I can't remember I think I I think that's the one where I've changed I think because I think yeah Chris Giles put it up really well it's like I don't think every single billionaire is a policy failure but for the most part I think, you know, it's very hard to become a billionaire unless you are truly brilliant without some form of rent-seeking exploitation or exploitation of a monopoly one shouldn't have. Mm. I guess it's a bit like, you know, like blood in your stool, right? It doesn't necessarily mean (laughs) every person who has blood in their stool has something seriously wrong with them, right? But they should all go to the doctor. (laughs) And that's broadly where I'm at on billionaires. I thought billionaires are a policy failure sounded like a Stephen Bush headline. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> Surely it would be like billionaires are a policy failure, but not for the reason you think. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, what did you both put for binge drinking is a problem in this country? I think I put don't know because I don't know. <laughs> I think the binge kind of threw me because although I know that having an alcohol problem is probably one of the worst curses because alcohol is so prevalent. Um, and you can have alcohol advertising and all sorts of things in this country. I didn't, I wasn't so sure about the binge. I don't know whether the problem with drinking in this country is because people are binging or people are consuming a moderate amount too often. What did you put? I felt like there was a sort of an implicit judgment of people drinking maybe in that, but I think it's just absolutely true in that I'm, I'm really, really interested in British drinking culture, which is, I mean, the same as Irish drinking culture, but I'm just, I'm, I'm very, very interested in it in the way that I think people don't really drink in moderation and like drink to huge ex- excess, often like just once a week at the weekend mm-hmm. and that it is quite damaging. And I think it's one of my more conservative opinions. And then on the next one, we should legalize cannabis. That was one where I kind of felt I kind of felt pressurized, even though I was just doing the quiz on my own. I clicked agree when I think when I really interrogate my feelings on that, I don't really agree. I just know that it's the position taken by people I agree with. And there's a strong policy argument for legalizing cannabis. But I think, again, a bit like binge drinking, I would be kind of concerned about the mental health impact of cannabis. And so my instincts actually lean towards not legalizing it, even though I'm not actually sure what the interaction would be between legalizing it and the the mental health impact. Yeah, and all of these, it's, it's difficult, isn't it? It's difficult to separate from the context that you usually think about these things in. So on the one hand, you like you said, the people who I would see as my tribe or the people who I usually agree with on principle would think this about this. But because I know this about the state of addiction services and mental health provision in this country, I have to think, you know, I have to think twice about it because while it should be a safe and legal activity, do we have the um, do we have the sort of provision and infrastructure to to help the minority of people who can't do it in a safe way, for example? So that's where you have the like gut and sort of policy knowledge clashing again. The cannabis one I actually just found deeply easy because I think we have done a much better job of reducing the harms of smoking tobacco through legalizing it and through public health approaches than we have through we have with pretty much anything else and we've actually done a better job of reducing consumption of alcohol which I do agree we do have a problem with in this country what I struggled with with the binge drinking is a problem and I guess this is a broader thing with a lot of these quizzes I had this brief moment it's like I can feel that the answer that I'm giving here is going to position is going to make it seem like I'm in favor of certain policy solutions that I'm broadly not into Mm. To what extent do you both think that a compass like this is like useful or meaningful in terms of people's political positions? I suppose what I mean by that is that I don't think that people define themselves by their economic positions and their social positions equally and care like much more about some things rather than others and probably don't have an equal set of priorities in any election or when they think of of themselves as political beings. So if you think of the way each main political party at the moment is thinking about its economic position and its social position, and they are not necessarily interrelated, and 
just with you know for example like the conservatives at the last election and now being like much more prepared to have um, increases in public spending and public investment and labor implicitly just kind of like trying to like rub the sharp edges off its wokeness under Keir Starmer mm. to sort of alienate red wall voters um, less. To what extent is the political compass or, or identifying people politically in this way like useful or, or meaningful, do you both think? I think that it's particularly useful for the people taking the test themselves because I don't know about you, but more than ever when we were on the sort of campaign trail for for the most recent couple of elections, actually, people would say, well, I don't know what I am anymore. I always voted this, but I think this usually about Brexit Mm. or I think this about some sort of cultural issue, which makes me think that I'm not that. So in particular, you'd hear conservatives who were pro-Remain sort of saying, well, maybe I'm a liberal, maybe I'm not actually, you know, a Tory anymore. Or you'd have people who were young and felt left let down, but didn't really see themselves as socialist in the in the sort of in the image of Je- of Jeremy Corbyn, who weren't really sure what they were. So I think these kind of quizzes, which ask which ask you specific questions about things that aren't don't require a huge amount of knowledge for you to know kind of where where you generally lie, are really useful for that to sort of work out who you actually are politically. But in terms of collecting information about voters. I'm not sure how useful it is unless you know which of the answers to all of the questions that you'd actually prioritise in terms of your voting. So you might think, yeah, we should abolish landlords, but that might not be the reason why you want to vote for a certain party. You might feel much stronger about having sex with aliens. (laughs) So I guess if you're trying to collect data on people, I'm not sure how helpful it is unless you know what, what lines people vote along. You know, it's a bit of fun. It's interesting, and you learn your something about yourself by doing this. It's also, as as Anush kind of says, and one of the things which was interesting about both the twenty fifth, twenty. Well, actually, I think about I was out twenty seventeen. But actually, I think the interesting thing about all three elections, right, is in twenty fifteen, a bunch of liberal conservatives did not understand. I'm sorry, I am going to put it that bluntly because I'm afraid. I think that if you didn't understand that the twenty fifteen election was your your last chance to save our EU membership. You fundamentally, I think, did not understand something quite profound about the country and where it was on on the issue of Europe. But a bunch of liberal conservatives did not prioritise their liberalism at all, and so they voted conservative. In 2017, broadly, what happened was a large chunk of the electorate voted on either on liberal authoritarian lines. And the success of the conservatives slash the failure of Labour in 2019, or a bit of both, was then the Conservatives managed to hold on to both their quadrants while the Labour Party disintegrated in both quadrants, but particularly painfully in its um, Lib Orth quadrant. I think it's a useful way to think about voter behaviour with not actually being a particularly useful set of data to collect because the stuff you prioritise is, is so variant depending on circumstances, right? Like, I think I've probably used this example before, but like, I feel like my objection to benefit sanctions which is obviously quite an economically left position, but for me at least, it, it it does largely originate in like my visceral objection to the idea that like the only way that you can get people to back into work is if you hit them with a stick, you know, if they don't turn up to a job centre at a specific time. And although I know that the policy case does suggest I'm right on that, I'm very aware that that is literally just a feeling in my stomach of like of revulsion at that from a kind of liberal perspective. Mm. But you can't know that with any other voter because you can't sit there being like, so I'm going to prod you. What, what do you really care about here? 
and you can you can take that uh, you can take the quiz at thetakemachine.co.uk. If you've been enjoying our podcast and want to find out more about what we think and some of our colleagues too, then why not subscribe to the New Statesman? You can get twelve weeks for twelve pounds. Go to newstatesman.com forward slash subscribe twelve. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Now it's time for a section we like to call You Ask, you ask us. us. So, Alba, what is our question this week? So, we've had a few questions asking about the ongoing saga in Northern Ireland um, relating to Michelle O'Neill, the Deputy First Minister, attending the funeral of, a, of senior Republican Bobby Story and apparently breaking social distancing rules. So we've been asked a few questions about whether she will have to resign, what this means for the Stormont executive. And also, I think we haven't got questions on this, but the, you know there are interesting questions to, to answer to on what this means for Sinn Féin, North and South. So what actually happened? Those are the bare bones of it. Bobby's story is probably not a name that would be familiar to very many English listeners or even really Irish listeners, unless you're sort of older and or pay careful attention to to republicanism in Northern Ireland. But Bobby's story behind the scenes and within his community was a very, very senior IRA figure and senior figure within, within Sinn Féin. And so he... He was, he's been involved in some quite high profile, and this is a strange word, but kind of some of the more glamorous crimes or alleged crimes committed allegedly by the IRA, not just during the Troubles, but more recently. So he was apparently the mastermind between some IRA figures breaking out of, of the Mays prison in the 80s. Which was like which they which in Republican circles was sort of dubbed the Great Escape. He was also allegedly behind the the Northern Bank robbery in two thousand and two, which was the biggest bank robbery in British history. And so, sort of behind the scenes, was a very like significant and revered Republican figure and quite a controversial one. So his funeral was always going to be a thorny affair in the way that basically all funerals in Northern Ireland, where the the figure in question had historic paramilitary links. Are, are always quite touchy um, and like sensitive in terms of, of sectarian politics and community politics because it's a rare moment where you th- where people reflect on that person's history and you see you know some some people really revering them and other people being like very appalled by what they represent so that would that was always going to be thorny and tricky but it's also it, it takes on a whole new significance in the era of coronavirus because we saw last week 
lots of senior figures from Sinn Féin. So um, the former party president, Jerry Adams, the party leader at the moment, Mary Lou MacDonald, and then Michelle O'Neill, who's the deputy leader and the deputy first minister, all attending this funeral where, as far as you can tell, there's basically no social distancing in place and no one was wearing masks. And this has caused a huge amount of hurt, a sort of I mean, it's a, there are obvious differences, but it's a little bit like a, a Northern Irish version of the Dominic Cummings affair, where there's just a feeling that someone in Michelle O'Neill, who who was making the rules, then broke them. So one rule for her, one rule for Sinn Féin, and one rule for um, everyone else. And she would say that there was social distancing in the church, and that there have recently been introduced new regulations around attendance of church services and funeral services in Northern Ireland to the people who've been very hurt that they could only attend a funeral of up to 10 people have a legitimate hurt, but but the rules have changed. But I think that there is just a, a more general feeling that no one was social distancing and that honouring the memory of this very controversial figure took precedence over honouring the spirit of the rules, particularly because there there are some selfies from the funeral of Michelle O'Neill with other mourners with, with big grins on their faces, which which has like gone down very badly with people. It's interesting because the kind of other factor, I'm so, I say this and I'm suddenly concerned in the last hour or so, something's happened to make me seem to sound very stupid, is that at time of recording, the Alliance has called for her to resign. The SDLP has called for her called for her to resign. I think I'm right in mm-hmm. saying the UUP has called for her to resign, but Arlene Foster and the DUP have not. Yeah, so I think I think that's the crucial thing that the DUP, even though they have now technically asked for her to resign pending an investigation by the police into her actions, they were slow to do so. And Arlene Foster herself hasn't been so explicit about demanding that. And it and it raises, I think, very interesting questions about the executive. Lots of individual people within the DUP are, are furious about this and lots of lots of unionists, you know, ringing into the Stephen Nolan show, the sort of call in show in Northern Ireland. Like lots of unionists as well as nationalists are, are very upset about this. One of the the most interesting things about this, which is sort of the the relationship in the Stormont executive at the moment, which has only been up and running again for a few months after a three-year hiatus. And this is like very much the kind of controversy that could collapse the executive in Stormont again. And you can just see from the way the DUP have reacted to this that they are determined not to let that happen. Mm. That like Michelle O'Neill is very unlikely to resign over this and she's she has offered a, a half apology for the selfie and, and for the hurt that was caused around the event while very much um, standing by attending the funeral. But like Michelle O'Neill is definitely not going to resign over this. And the DUP are, are definitely not prepared to collapse the executive over it. And it has the potential to to rock things down the line because you can you can see that there are that there is obvious discontent around this within the DUP. And I think it'd be interesting to look to look more closely at the divisions that are emerging around that like in a in a future piece of journalism, because I think that they might they might remain for a long time. But there has been a feeling in Northern Ireland that that this and as you wrote at the start of this, Stephen, that this would be a, a big test for the new executive. And what we've seen over the past few months is that Michelle O'Neill and Arlene Foster 
have definitely have have performed I'd say quite well and I think that's consensus across the board and they have they've worked together very very well both of their mothers were in hospital not for coronavirus but both in hospital over the same period and became much closer because of it and from working very closely together during this crisis a bit like Martin McGuinness and Ian Paisley Sr at the beginning of power sharing where they kind of they developed a very unlikely personal relationship and would, you know, would be pictured laughing together and were dub- dubbed the Chuckle Brothers. It's a little bit like that again with Arlene Foster and Michelle O'Neill having to work together through this crisis. And at the moment, I think, you know, D- the DUP don't have any clout in Westminster whatsoever after the, the end of the confidence and supply deal with Theresa May. And so they're, all their eggs are in the storm basket, as it were, and they can't really afford to to let this executive collapse. And so they're they're kind of prepared, I think, to to let it go while putting on a bit of a front of of, of outrage. Um, yeah, actually, I wanted to ask you about the the DUP's political position. So Arlene Foster, in the last um, God, I suddenly feel very old. Broadly, in the last half decade. Arlene Foster has led the DUP to the loss of the unionist the, the unionist majority in Stormont over Cash for Ash. Mm. She was the architect of an approach to the Brexit negotiations that has seen slash will see the creation of a customs border in the Irish Sea, a fairly existential threat to, to unionism. And in 2019, the party lost seats at a Westminster level, including its deputy leader and, and as, as you say right that lots of people have, have drawn a parallel between in the kind of strength and personal relationship between the first minister and the deputy but the difference then was that Ian Paisley was Ian Paisley he had a huge amount of credibility to be able to carry that close working relationship off how is she pulling it off considering the half, half decade she's had it's a good question and to be honest I don't really know in that I feel like I would want to, to speak to more people and and plug in a bit more to, I think, the rumblings of discontent within the DUP with regards to the handling of this Michelle O'Neill thing. I think maybe the answer is that, you know, there's like, just that's political saying, but, you know, the right man for the right moment. I think maybe there, there was a feeling that for, for all of the obvious recent political failures, that maybe Arlene Foster was the right woman for this moment in that, I think on the the detail of the coronavirus response, she and Michelle O'Neill have worked quite well together. There was a kind of hiccup near the start because obviously Northern Ireland is in a very interesting position policy-wise with regard to, to the approach to a pandemic where they're in the UK but sharing an, an island with the Republic of Ireland. And so when the Republic went into lockdown, the UK hadn't at that point. And there were competing policies that they could have aligned with. And basically the unionists were on the UK side of things and the nationalists were on the, the Republican side of things or, or on the side with the Republic. But they kind of, they resolved that quite quickly and have been slightly more aligned to their approach, to the approach taken in the south of Ireland. And Northern Ireland hasn't suffered very many casualties. And, and you can just see in... in I mean, they've been accused of sort of taking their eye off the ball on on Brexit issues. And I, I mean, I'm, I'm sure as with basically every government, there will be failings that will be highlighted in due course. But like broadly, they've done a pretty good job. And she's a sort of details woman and 
has has made a good a good go of of this situation and maybe there's just a feeling of of a new era that the DUP have had a lot of recent failings and haven't made the impact in in Westminster that they hoped they would and there were some really bad political miscalculations there from their perspective but this is maybe a new era where they are like mutually dependent um on this on Sinn Féin and Sinn Féin is on them even though there are other parties in the executive they're the two main ones and they kind of have to make this work for the political viability of of the UP as, as a project. You've been listening to the New States and Podcast with me, Stephen Bush, our Britain editor, Anusha Kellyan, and our political correspondent, Alva Ray. Our music is still Devil by the Devil, licensed under Creative Commons. If you're enjoying the New States and Podcast, please do leave a favourable review on iTunes, Acast, or your other designated podcatcher. Trust in politics is broken. So can we get UK politics working again? That was the last time we were happy. 2012. I'm Beth Rigby, Sky's political editor. Join me every week with Labour's Jess Phillips and Conservative peer Ruth Davidson for some electoral dysfunction. This idea of nuance has completely left politics. Together we'll focus on the policies that could deliver political satisfaction. Follow electoral dysfunction wherever you get your podcasts.